Problem Gambling podcast is proudly sponsored by Gamban, the simple and effective way to block access to online gambling on all your devices. If willpower slips, Gamban doesn't. Go to gamban.com to find out more. Hello and welcome to the Problem Gambling podcast. I'm Barry Grant, an addiction counsellor with Extern Problem Gambling. And my co-host is Tony O'Reilly, also an addiction counsellor with the project and the co-author of the book, Tony 10. And today we're doing the second part of our, in our series, looking at the 12 step approach to gambling addiction recovery from Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, so if you're listening, this is the first episode you're listening to, go back one episode because <laughs> it's going to get a bit confusing and you're much, much better starting at the start. So go back one episode and listen to the previous one because we're jumping into steps uh, four, five and six today. Uh, well, maybe a bit more, depending on how we go for time. Um, OK, so we did steps one and two and three last week. Like I said, if this is the first episode you're listening to, just go back one episode if you're interested in the 12 steps. We're moving on to step four today. And as we said the last day, like this isn't usually the way I would work. I mean, Tony uh, went through treatment and a big part of his recovery was this 12 step approach. So Tony knows a lot more about this and is ex much more experienced of this than I do. So I'm learning a lot from Tony as we discuss this. Uh, so we did the first three of the 12 steps last week. So we're on to step four this week. And this is a really interesting one. I think there's huge value in it. And it's probably a pretty scary for a lot of people. And the step goes, uh, made, we made a searching and fearless moral and financial inventory of ourselves, right? That's, that's, that's a mouthful there, right? So a fearless and moral and financial inventory of ourselves. So Tony, I mean, what was your experience of that going through treatment first off? Um, going through treatment and, um, Afterwards, kind of GA meeting for, for a while after treatment, it was the one step that everyone was really, really kind of apprehensive about. You know, people would talk about um, working with sponsors, and then the fourth step was coming up. And apparently, like it's one of the the longest ones to do, um, and one of the most difficult because you really have to look inwards to yourself and really kind of figure out the things that you don't really like about yourself. It's like, it's like, it's that, you know, fearless moral inventory. And the financial one can be difficult as well, because like, I remember in early recovery, um, while I was in the treatment center, my wife brought in the, all the, all the kind of the big, I never forget the day, the big folder with all the, the bank statements, everything she'd been working away in the background and discovering more and more. And I never get sitting in the car in the car park of the treatment center. And, just going through it and kind of going, Christ, I didn't think it was this bad. And then at the end of it all, getting a figure at the end of it all. And then it's the first time you really kind of recognize financially how bad the Camden kind of brought or how bad the Camden was. And that was, um, you know, it was, it was a bit of a rude awakening in one sense. But on, a, on the flip side, I thought it was a lot worse. So that's the kind of, you know, you just have no concept of, money um you know talking to clients over the last couple of months you just keep going keep going keep going until you bottom out with money or someone finds out and that can be really really difficult but then when you have to face up the consequences of your your gambling and 
we were already talking about yesterday, it's kind of like that, that, that can be, the debt legacy can be a big um, kind of roadblock to recovery because you're constantly looking back, looking, I still owe this money. It's actually having an impact on my day to day, even two or three years into recovery, I'm still paying back money. So to, to look at that and really be honest about that to yourself and to others is really difficult. And I think that's, that, that's one of the reasons why it's kind of seen as a really tough step. And then looking at your own failings, your own how your values and how your how you how you kind of compromised every single value you had in addiction, um, and to really look at that, and that's difficult as well because you're you don't you never like the person that you you have become in addiction, and then once you're out of it, you still have to look back and maybe um, make amends to a lot of people and to a lot of different situations. So it is a difficult step to face. Yeah, and I mean, there's a couple of really important things in there. So, I mean, that financial inventory is incredibly important. And I've worked with loads of people around that where there could be all sorts of debts and money's owed. And usually the ones that really are triggering for most people that I've worked with will be around personal loans. So like a friend, family member, co-worker, whatever. And quite often people are borrowing from Peter to pay Paul and there's all this stuff going on and then you're dodging people and then they're chasing you looking for money and you know that I think they're the, the biggest triggers and quite often it's it's useful to get someone to sit down and go okay list every person and every organization that you owe money to and then okay let's prioritize the personal ones you know the organizations if it's banks credit unions credit card companies Go to MABS, the Money Advice and Budgeting Service, their statutory body, so they can intervene. They can do a payment plan with you. And because they're state or semi-state, they can go to the bank and say, if this person can only pay X amount, that's all they're paying you, right? Whereas it's you as an individual on your own without the backing of MABS, it's going to be much harder to have that conversation, right? So if you have money to organizations, talk to MABS, they'll put a payment plan in place. Also tell MABS that you have personal loans, personal borrowings. And I suppose what I would encourage most people to do, because it's such a stressor uh, on individuals, you know, friends, family members, money versus on the bank money. I mean, you can keep ignoring the bank up to a point, right? And people generally don't feel as bad, you know, guilty, shameful about owning a bank money as a friend or a family member. So you prioritize those kind of personal loans. And then you need to talk to those people in a realistic way and say, look, if you want to tell them about the gambling, sure. If you want to tell them you're just going through a difficult financial time, whatever story you want to tell them, but you say, I cannot afford to pay you the full amount this week or this month. Can we get into a payment plan? Some people will say yes. Some people will say no. The people who say no, go to the top of the list. You pay them. You pay the other people in a payment plan. You do your work with MABS. You pay off the organizations banks credit card companies etc on a long-term payment plan in, in you know whatever you can afford mabs will figure out what you can actually afford to pay them but i think that financial inventory bit is unbelievably important right because it's such a stressor to relapse and i think especially those kind of personal loans that a lot of people take out from friends family members co-workers and others and then the moral bit i mean okay some people kind of one of the aspects that the 12 step meetings uh, some people struggle with obviously not everybody is maybe what is perceived 
by some to be a kind of a religious or pseudo-religious aspect to it. And you start talking about morality and people are like, hang on a second, you don't get to tell me what morality is, right? Which, of course, is true. Like, we all kind of make our own morality, unless you're particularly kind of religiously observant and then you take your moral instruction from your religious organization. But even then, we kind of tend to make up our own morality as we go along. And there are social constructs about morality and those social constructs can change over time and they can be different within different cultures. Well, what I think is useful is doing, they do this in the smart recovery meetings. It's a very quick, simple exercise. They call the, the hierarchy of values. You get a piece of paper, it could be a post-it, back of an envelope, write down off the top of your head, give yourself 60 seconds to do it so you don't overthink it. And write down the top five things that are your core values in life, right? If you're listening now, just pause the episode and just do it quickly. Don't overthink it. Give yourself maximum 60 seconds. Bang it out. For a lot of people that I've done that exercise with, it'll be things like family. It might be honesty. It might be trustworthiness. It could be, say, financial stability. It could be physical health and mental health. You know, off the top of my head, there'll be a lot of the, the common ones, right? And then you look at those things and you go, okay, you've listed five things that are your core values, which guide your, your version of morality, whatever that is. And then let's say it's family. How is your gambling impacted on your family? Is it in conflict with your values around what family means to you as, as a core value? Honesty, if that's one of them, you know, perceiving yourself as an honest person or behaving in, in honest ways. Has your gambling impacted on your behavior? in regards to that value that you have, or you, have you been behaving in conflict with that value? Because when we're, I suppose the theory is, and I, I would agree with it, that when we're behaving in conflict with our core values, and the values are different from person to person, it's an individual thing. When you're behaving in conflict with your values, you're suffering, right? Because you have these core values, you know subconsciously, or sometimes consciously, that you're behaving in a way that you feel is wrong. It's the wrong way to behave based on your own individual core set of values. And when you're behaving in a way that you feel to be wrong, you're going to feel guilt and shame, which means you're going to suffer, you're going to feel bad. And if you're feeling bad and guilty and shameful, you're much more likely to hit the self-destruct button and continue in the cycle on the hamster wheel. Um, so I suppose we're kind of teasing out that idea of morality, because again, I know this can be a thing for some people. We spoke about it the last day. People throw out the baby with the bathwater. They hear higher power or God of your understanding or morality, and they go, <gasps> religion. Somebody's trying to force religion down my throat. Like, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. There's loads of brilliant stuff in here. Nice, <laughs> really, really useful stuff that's worked for millions of people in different countries, different cultures all around the world for nearly 100 years, right? So I suppose if you're listening to this, you know, take the good out of it, your version of whatever the good is. I mean, I mean, when you were doing that moral bit, like Tony, was that a, a big thing? Was that kind of uh, something that helped you develop insight? Was it a very difficult experience or what came out of that for you? I suppose I didn't really do um, the step work, I suppose, during my recovery um, yet anyway. So, but I think when you were mentioning the values and the morals and uh, it, like mine would definitely, one of my big ones would be being honest and being a good person. And I compromised all that in, in um, 
in addiction um, to the point where I was suffering with it. Like, you know, I was, it was that conflict in your head of, I know what I'm doing is wrong, but I can't stop myself because I need to fix it. And that was always, um, that inner kind of struggle was always nearly tore me apart day, day after day because it, it became a person that wasn't me. And then, like a lot of people will always say after a few weeks, um, especially after coming out with Kuhn Vera, I suppose, that they saw that I was back to who I was before addiction. So they saw the, the old Tony, you're laughing here. It's great to see you smiling again. Great to see you happy again. Because I was absolutely miserable, not only in addiction because of what addiction, but as you say, it's because I was compromising my morals every day. And like, I believe I am a good person by and large. We all make mistakes. We all have bad days. We all do things we wish we didn't do. But by and large, I feel I'm a good person. While I was gambling, I wasn't. I wasn't a nice person at all. I was far from it. Um, and to accept that, I think one of the big things I always say to myself and clients is that you have to separate who you believe you are as a person or what you believe your values are to what they were while you're in addiction because you compromise absolutely every single value and every single thing that you believe in. So I think it was, <clears throat> looking back at it, it was it was nice, like it was nice when everything just came to light and when I went through the process of um, really looking inwards. I think what when I looked inwards, that was really when I was in Coomberra. It was probably about six or seven weeks and I really started to look in at the person I'd become and the person I wanted to be and the person I was at that moment. And I didn't like the person I was. The person I was at that moment was in transition and the old gambler mind of me wanted to be back to where I was straight away. But I had to really work through the ins and outs of kind of talking to people, looking inwards, looking at my finances, looking at my morals, my values, and reclaiming them back in recovery. And that sometimes is, is difficult because you're so conditioned to be one way. Like, you know, you, I would say I'd like to see, think I'm an honest person, but when you're gambling, you're lying every single day of the week to cover up everything. So sometimes even in recovery, you'd find yourself, someone would ask you what you had for your dinner, and you tell them you had chicken, even though you might have had beef. So it's kind of like that you're lying automatically without even thinking about it. So you, you really have to work on that side of it and look at the things you don't you didn't like about your self-addiction and try not let that behavior come back in while in recovery because that's where the old behaviors can drift back in. And that's a good way to kind of always kind of check in with yourself. Am I slipping back into old behaviors? You know, if you're looking at that and relapse continuum, am I slipping back into old ways, old thoughts, old things, but especially old behaviors when it comes to gambling. And that can be just the white lies come in for no reason. And that's always an indication to me, or the secrecy. That's always an indication to me that maybe you're slipping back into all ways. You need to catch yourself here. So while it's really good in recovery to look at it and really give yourself a sense of who you were who, and who you want to be um, and not who you were in addiction, it's also good for relapse prevention because you can recognize if you really notice how you were in addiction and how you compromise your morals, you can really recognize when you're slipping back into those in recovery. Yeah, and I think that's really important to point out, you know, that the the slips are you and the relapses are usually happening in your head, in your behaviors, in your thought processes long before you're walking in the doors of a bookies or lodging money in a, onto an online account or whatever way you, you might be gambling or if it's drink or drugs or anything else, that the mindset starts drifting back into towards the excuse me that area where you're back doing things that are in conflict with your values 
right? You know, so like that's somebody asks you out for dinner, what you have for dinner is just like automatically lying because you know that's just the, the the headspace that you're in, and then maybe drifting back to some more of those things. You know, the I suppose in the twelve steps that I'm sure I've mentioned it before is that uh, not in the steps, but you know, some of these great phrases from the meetings um, that you're only as sick as your secrets. You know, which I think has a lot of value. Now, at the same time, most people have secrets. Right? <laughs> I don't think there's anybody out there, even the most kind of well-adjusted person who's a completely open book. I, I really sincerely doubt that. But there are certain types of secrets for a person in recovery that are really not a good idea. Right? So I suppose you need to be able to discern what those things, what those, what are the, the red line uh, issues that you can't drift over you know you need to identify those for yourself maybe that's part of that moral moral inventory process as well where you're able to say okay there are certain red line things that i must not be doing right it's going to be different from person to person uh, some people drift back into checking sports results checking horse racing results things like that and then they find themselves, well, they're not gambling, but in their heads, they're going, oh, I would have won a lot of money on that and I would have picked that and that and that. Of course, you've got this hindsight bias, all these different cognitive biases that are going to trick you into thinking that. And of course, if you have an underlying addiction with gambling, that's going to be nudging you in that direction as well. Uh, it could be lying, it could be secrecy in other aspects of your life that are kind of letting you drift back into all behaviors. So again, we all kind of create our own set of morals within, I suppose, certain kind of, you know, the rules of society and the golden rule and all the different types of moral codes that might be out there. And I suppose part of that inventory process might be to go, well, look, these are the red line issues for me. I cannot drift over those red lines. If I start drifting, if I catch myself drifting over those red lines, do I need to get back doing more regular meetings if i've met again for some people that's a warning sign that they've, they're going to meetings less regularly or have stopped going altogether do i need to go back into counseling do i need to talk to a friend or a family member do i need to go back to having somebody managing my finances if i've stopped doing that you know you need to keep a level of awareness there i think last week i was making the analogy of you know we're all driving forward all the time right but we in that process we just need to check the rear view mirror every once in a while just to keep ourselves safe and i think there's something like that maybe in that process any other thoughts on that one tony just to finish up with what russell brand writes about it as we said we were kind of touching in on what his thoughts were on on it last week um in his book um freedom from our addictions and he writes down write down all the things that are fucking you up or have ever fucked you up and don't lie or leave anything out. And I probably wouldn't necessarily fully agree with that because I think what, what happens, and it did happen to me while I was in Coombera and in recovery, um, you know, you, you, you come out of recovery and it's like zen-like, you know, you, you, you've, you've had this awakening where you can talk about your problems when you can talk very openly and honestly. And the atmosphere in there really... Um, creates space for you to do that. So sometimes when you come back out into the real world, inverted commas, you want to tell everyone everything. And you can leave yourself very vulnerable in that. Um, like I would always say, I'd, I'd always find a space where I can be totally honest um, with myself and totally honest with someone else. That can be in counseling um, or supervision 
for myself. But sometimes, you know, part of the um, a further um, step down the line is like it's make amends other than where to do so would cause harm to others. And sometimes we, we come out and we're, you know, we just, we don't want to lie. We just want to tell everything out to everyone. And sometimes that can leave other people probably hurting more. And sometimes we just need to take that step a little bit back as well. Um, because I've done it on a few occasions where I just came out and just told everything, everything to everyone. And it kind of left other people feeling worse than what they did before that. And that's, um, you know, that's, that was let that in turn left me vulnerable, which can be a trigger. But I do think it's, um, you know, it is one of the toughest steps um, there because looking inward is not easy, especially when you're in recovery and you're, and you're probably living through the fallout of your addiction, especially with, with gambling addiction, because the fallout can be, um, you know, can kind of take a lot longer to kind of work through. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that's really important. Like, yeah, sometimes people can become walking honesty machines and uh, that may not always be appropriate in all situations at all times. Like, you, you need to be cognizant of that and you need to have some level awareness of that because yeah, I suppose there are certain situations where being 100% honest 100% of the time may not be appropriate and it may yeah impact on other people's feelings as well or cause unnecessary conflict sometimes um yeah and i love russell brand's version <laughs> keep it keep it simple stupid keep it simple um the next step step five is that we admitted to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs right and that seems pretty straightforward to me we were talking about the stages of change a couple of episodes ago i think episode one of, of season four of the of uh, the podcast looking at that stages of change model and the first step again which is in in the stages of change model and in the 12 step model is to <laughs> admit to yourself uh first of all that you have a problem and that this thing is out of your control you cannot do the thing in a controlled way. You can't gamble in a controlled way ever for the vast majority of people who develop gambling problems. Same with alcohol or other drugs of choice, right? And then, so I mean, it starts with admitting to yourself, right? That there's a problem and that you cannot do this thing in a controlled way. And in this step, you're uh, admitting to ourselves and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Like, so, to be able to, first of all, you have to admit it to yourself, otherwise you're never going to talk to anybody else about it and you're never going to do anything about the problem because you're not going to see it as a problem. Like That's a given. And then to admit to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. So, I mean, in the 12-step meeting, which is a peer support process, you're admitting to other people in the group uh, some of the things that you feel were wrong that you did. It could be in a one-to-one -one setting you're talking to a, a counselor a therapist um or you know you could talk to somebody anonymously on a helpline at three o'clock in the morning who'd be more than happy to to listen to you in a non-judgmental way and, and and have a chat or call a helpline like ours or you know there are many ways to do it you could talk to a friend talk to a family member i mean before we started recording today it's talking about the amount of people that i've worked with who we're actively gambling, suffering, but, you know, we're, we're still in that mindset where they thought they could gamble their way out of it. So they told nobody and eventually, you know, they were caught because their partner or someone else realized that there was money missing or that certain important bills weren't paid. 
or I saw a bank statement or a, a final notice letter from a credit card company or something, and the whole you know house of cards came tumbling down. And the vast, vast majority of people that I've spoken to in that situation just talk about the absolute relief. You spoke about it yourself, you know, when the the PSNI officers uh, came to the door in, in Carrickfergus, Tony. Just that sense of relief of, oh, God, thank God this is over. You know, even people talk about the relief of when they hit zero in the bookies office. You know, those last few bets, quite often people are just trying to get rid of the money because they just want to get out the door. You know, they, they're just so sick and tired. They're burnt out. Um, so, I mean, the relief of either being caught, which, again, is not a deliberate action on your part. And I suppose what we're trying to encourage people to do is take a deliberate action, take control of your recovery, make deliberate choices that are healthy for you and the people around you. And, you know, again, worked with a lot of people in that situation where they're working up to telling a, a person close to them about the gambling problem and they're stressing about it and they're worried and they can't sleep at night. And then they tell the person and the relief is just intense, like just like this gigantic weight being lifted off their shoulders or off their chest or whatever way you want to describe it so there are a lot of different ways to talk to another human being about the ex exact nature of our wrongs as it says in the step but whatever way you dice it up whatever way you approach that it's so unbelievably important and has so much therapeutic value for you in your recovery like if you're listening to this I cannot encourage you strongly enough to do that in whichever way you feel is most appropriate to you um, I mean, you've spoken about this before, Tony. I suppose that PSNI officer in Carrick Fergus was that the first person that you'd spoken to about it? Yeah, it was the first person that um, had ever heard the ins and outs of it. Um, so it was like, you know, I was sitting back on the bed and a complete stranger heard, you know, for about half an hour, an hour, um, nearly the full version of my story it kind of came flying out. Um, you know, it was just. It was, yeah, it was, and it was unbelievably, um, you know, there was just a huge sense of relief. Um, and then when family members came in, you could see their reaction, and then there was a huge sense of relief. But then you go on that roller coaster where, you know, not everyone will have the same reaction, and then you, you get brought back into the shame and the guilt, and then you'll have moments where you'll go into treatment for the three months, and everyone is the sense of togetherness and everyone is going through something similar so there's a connectivity there and you're in a non-judgmental empathic environment and then it's when you come back out of the treatment then again that can be you know you can go on that roller coaster again where you know you know people have are going through their own kind of side of it or their own part of your actions or your addiction and it can be that up and down up and down but by and large there's a huge amount of relief in uh, opening up and a lot of client work um, you know, people will be mindful about telling, you know, sometimes it could be family members, sometimes a lot of times it's definitely telling friends about it. And I suppose my experience of, of that, and I've talked about on the podcast before, that was taken away from me. So everyone kind of knew at once. And while that was difficult at the time, I really think that's really helped me in my recovery because it's that sense of everyone knows. So, you know, people then can, they either are going to, judge you or not judge you or understand or not understand but sometimes that fear of telling someone yourself when you know you're you're living with the guilt and shame of the gambling that can be a big thing and um there's a couple of people i worked with recently where they've they've come out and they've told their their friends and their reaction has been absolutely brilliant in all the cases 
and that has really helped them in recovery because suddenly they don't feel as alone with it um, and I think it's really really important and you'll often see it in meetings as well like um, my first meeting I'll never forget sitting there and kind of being real nervous about sharing because I never, I've, other than the PSNI officer I suppose and probably over the next couple of weeks bits trips and drops but there's a certain energy in a, in a GA room when you kind of come out and then tell your stories like when you say like I'm Tony I'm a compulsive gambler you're admitting like that's the, the first line and you're always saying I kind of I pulled against that in long when I've gone longer into recovery for various reasons but even saying that at the very start you're admitting to everyone and there is a certain energy in that or certain kind of ownership in it and I think that's the power of the GA rooms because you have that sense that you can talk about this very openly and honestly and everyone in the room will get it and that you might not always get in your day-to-day lives that's why they're so important in recovery and um but that initial first step to do that can be really difficult a lot of clients i'm sure you'll you're the same they don't want to engage in meetings and that's what i always hope to do while working with people is that when they become comfortable talking to an individual which sometimes is the case that maybe that can then happen within groups afterwards um but it is, it's a, there's a huge relief even just saying those words and saying, yeah, this is, this is me, this is my problem, but I'm now dealing with it. So it's, yeah, I found that really, really good. I'd nearly probably moved that one, that step ahead of the previous step, because I think it's very, very important to kind of talk to someone about it before you really look deeper into yourself about your moral and financial inventory. So I'd nearly moved them around um, personally. But I think it's huge value to admit it to someone else or to a counsellor or to a family member. Um, and then it's a choice of where you go from there with it then. Yeah, and yeah, it's, I suppose, so much stuff is this, so much stuff in the 12 steps is common sense stuff that is developed by, you know, originally by people who had, gotten into recovery themselves who'd observed what the traps were you know what were the things that were likely to cause people to relapse and using those common sense kind of observations and i suppose you know psychology is the study of human behavior right so i mean the people who developed the 12 steps (laughs) studied human behavior right (laughs) and they used that uh, those observations of human behavior and said well look if we boil it all down like these are all the things that are going to help protect you against relapse right it's sensible common sense highly logical and very specific stuff to preventing relapse into in any form of addiction right so like this huge huge value in so much of the stuff that's in here right and so far all of it very very common sense and we did definitely tease out the you know, the higher power and the God of my understanding and some of the, the stuff around that that people get hung up on. I would encourage if anyone who's listening to this, don't get too hung up on that stuff. Right? Like this important, sensible, you know, rigorous stuff from a psychological perspective, because it does tie in exactly with the way humans behave, right? It's sensible. It makes sense. It's logical. It's rational. And it works for millions and millions of people, right? So having said that, (laughs) we're moving on to uh, the next one, which I suppose I I, I would have studied the steps uh, just briefly when I was doing my degree. 
Uh, and this was one that definitely everybody in my year in college, we had major ding-dongs about this because <laughs> when our year in college, it was kind of split down the middle in terms of you know people believing in kind of disease model of addiction and people believing in total abstinence versus harm reduction and things like that. And we would have these kind of philosophical debates and blah, blah, blah. It was all kind of... It's interesting, and I suppose what's important to note from that is that some people can get hung up on some of the kind of nitty gritty, minute, granular details of some of this stuff, and not see the big picture. And the big picture is that this stuff works for a lot of people a lot of the time, which is the best thing you can say about any treatment approach. Right? <laughs> the best thing you can say about any treatment approach at all is that it works well for some people some of the time and whether it's cbt or dbt or 12-step or any of the hundreds of other you know re community reinforcement approach or any of the other approaches that are used in addiction treatment or any kind of mental health treatment they work well for some people some of the time right so your job getting into recovery is to find the one that works best for you most of the time and that might mean kissing a few frogs to find the one that resonates with you or that clicks with you. And I suppose uh, part of this podcast is trying to look at some of the different types of approaches that are out there. And maybe as we do that, you might go, oh, yeah, I like that. That works for me. Then do that. Right. Having said all of that, we're on to step six. Right? And step six says we were entirely ready to have these defects of character removed tony o'reilly what is a defect of character good question um the wording always gets me it's kind of um defect of character i suppose it's it's something i don't know it's probably something that's inherently wrong with you i think that's my probably um i don't like that um i never liked that um that part of the 12 steps approach i never liked that kind of defect of characters like it's for me, it's like it's there and it's there for life. You know, it's um, like we all have our faults, we all have our, our isms, but I think like just the way the wording of it um, just always kind of got me. Um, and it's used a lot, I think. And, and for me, the biggest part, and this is my own personal opinion on it, and, you know, you could get land-based for it or whatever else, um, but my own personal experience of gambling is that you know, I, it was a choice I made. Um, now, at the time, I was backed into a corner because, from different reasons that I got myself into, but the reason being I probably didn't know how to open up and ask for help at an earlier stage, and then it developed. And that's coming from my experiences in childhood, maybe not being able to, you know, ask for support, ask for help. Maybe, you know, you can go back to attachments and you can go back to, you know, kind of all that kind of stuff, I suppose. But, the inability to ask for help drove my addiction along that continuum and uh, my gambling along that continuum towards a gambling addiction. And do I see it as a disease um, or as a defect of character? Probably not. I see it as a, it was something that developed over time. Now it could be, you know, you could say, oh, it's an illness that developed over time. But I think for me, it's taking that personal responsibility is the huge part of my um my recovery i i should have asked for help it was something that's was in my control to stop at any stage but that's kind of counter 
and productive and kind of it's a tough one to get my head around to be honest with you it's kind of at any given time during my journey I felt I couldn't ask for help or support but I still knew what I was doing was wrong and it was just the further I got into it, the, the more and more I, got, I, I know I had, I felt I had to gamma my way out, but so it got more and more of a problem or an issue. Um, would I see it as a disease? Me personally, probably not. It was something that I developed um, as a coping skill, probably for, you know, insecurities, for whatever reason, people find themselves um, engaging in a behavior that kind of gets them away from that. Um, so for me, the insecurities were born out of my experiences in childhood, my experiences in, in groups of friends. And for me, gambling or sometimes even shopping or surrounding myself by nice things was a way to survive within that or cope within that. And as life, as you go through life and maybe the problems or insecurities can become bigger as you're going through relationships and, you know, work and, you know, how you see yourself within the world, the ability to escape from those is probably what I needed was gambling to escape fully from them, I suppose. I don't know if that makes sense because kind of, you kind of put me in the spot kind of asked me first off. Usually I just listen to yourself and then I formulate my own. So it, it is, it's, and, and I actually hate the fact that, you know, now in meetings, like starting off with, I am a compulsive gambler. I spin, like that's labeling. I'm a lot more than my behavior or my addiction. Like I am, you know, I am a good person. I am a father, I am a good friend, I am a partner, I am a work colleague, I'm a lot of these things, but to label yourself, I think, within that, sometimes, it kind of, I don't know, just just that part, it just didn't sit right with me for a while, and I can understand, you know, how important it is within the steps, but for me, it was just, it was just, something didn't quite sit with me. With it. Yeah, sorry for uh, throwing you under the bus there, that was a bit of a hospital pass. <laughs> I'm a bad person. I'm sorry. Okay, but like, no, I just wanted to get your slant on it before I kind of poisoned the well with my views on it and maybe logic. Because I mean, you would have, I, I imagine, thought maybe more deeply about this than I ever have, right? Because we'd spent like a couple of weeks on this in a module in college, and I suppose I formed opinions about it at that point and moved on. Whereas you did like, yeah, say, 13 weeks of treatment in Kumara then volunteered in Coomera, worked for Coomera, all, you know, 12-step approach, have attended however many GA meetings that you may have had more of an, an opinion on it than me. So sorry for throwing you under the bus. One that, it kind of, when I, when I was in prison, um, we used to have meetings, there were GA meetings in the front cabin in Dalton Abbey. And, there's some really good good guys used to come in and do the meetings. We used to go down in two ninety six or seven was in. And I remember I was sitting there and it was one of the other fellas actually said it. He just he said it, you know, hello, my name is we said John, you can say his name. Um, you know, um I'm in recovery. When I gambled, I gambled compulsively, but I'm not that person. It was something like that instead of the usual. And it got me kind of thinking, I kind of agreed with him on that. And then it was, there was one real thing that really got me is when we were reading out the, the Red Book and one of the questions on page eight, I think I might have mentioned before on the podcast that it was, um, is knowing why we gambled important? And, you know, it's kind of, of all the members that we asked, none have found it to be of any benefit to them to find out why they gambled. And I kind of went, that, you know, that's not my experience of it. And like, it's kind of very, it's very, um, I've done a research piece in college on it. Um, uh, it's very... 
very much a sweeping statement. Like I found benefit to find out why I gambled. So the kind of disease model is this is your disease. Do your meetings. You don't have to find out anything around why, what might drive the behavior and do your four or five meetings a week or two or three meetings or 10 meetings, whatever it is, and arrest the problem. And that's okay. It's a bit like if you have high blood pressure, take a tablet once a, once a day for the rest of your life. And that's fine. I didn't get that. I didn't quite like that because for me, finding out that it was insecurities or finding out that maybe attachment was driving the need to escape and some has had a huge bearing on my recovery because I've been able to make changes in my life. I've been able to recognize some of the behaviors when they come back in is due to the fact that I might be feeling insecure in a certain moment. I might be feeling a little bit unsure of myself and that drives certain behaviors. It might not, it's never, thankfully it's never driven me back to gambling, but definitely as I've mentioned numerous times, shopping could be one that comes in. Um, so I think it's very, very important for me to, or was very important for me to figure out why exactly it was that I, I fell into this behavior. And that's where I kind of, that's where the conflict for me is with that kind of, with that step is that I can understand for, for, for hundreds of thousands that this works and that's perfect. But for me, I needed to find out a little bit more. I needed to kind of get to the root of the problem and deal with that rather than just arresting the problem. And I think that's where, that's the, that's the kind of issue, I not even issue I would have with it, but that's where I would stand on it. That for me, anyway, finding out what was driving the behavior has really helped me in recovery rather than just assuming that if I go to four or five meetings a week, it'll never come back. So that's where I am at with it. It's a bit controversial maybe, but that's where I'm at with it anyway. Okay, and look, I suppose we're not, trying to be controversial here we're just trying to tease things out and unpack things and you know there are millions of people around the world who've interacted with 12-step meetings and you know really gotten into it and then there have been other people who've attended them and felt it wasn't for them for a variety of reasons and I suppose if we can unpack some of the stuff that goes through people's minds around some of the steps and some of the, the ideas in the 12-step meetings maybe that can help people to weigh up the pros and cons rather than just in a reactionary way going oh i don't like that bit boom and like i said too many times already throwing the baby out with the bathwater so we're certainly not trying to be controversial as i says i've said many times already over both of these episodes so far this approach has helped millions of people there is no one size fits all approach as far as i'm concerned now some people who do work from a 12-step approach may disagree with me on that but certainly my personal belief as a practitioner is that you, there's no one size fits all approach. You find the one that works for you, do that program, but work the program, whatever the program is that you, that, that resonates with you, that clicks with you, work that program, right? We're not saying any one is better than any other. That's certainly not what we're trying to say. So I haven't said all that so before people start getting super angry at us. That is not what we're trying to achieve here. We're just trying to tease out some stuff, unpack some stuff, explore some stuff, right? So, I mean, there was a few things there. I mean, first off, I mean, there's this idea of, okay, stand up, I am a compulsive gambler. So, I mean, I can see the value in that. It's a reminder to yourself and to say, well, look, I have this thing, whatever it is, if you see it as a disease or if you see it as something that, you know, you've kind of stumbled across this thing that you cannot do in a controlled way. For some people that's alcohol, for some people it's gambling, for some people it's drugs, for some people it's a combination of those things. But I've worked with a lot of people around gambling and the vast majority of people that I've worked with around gambling 
it's just gambling is the thing that they can't control. It's not that they're universally addicted to every addictive thing, right? It's just gambling is the thing in their life that they cannot do in a controlled way. And if you find value in standing up and saying, I'm a compulsive gambler, great, do that. And I, I can see some value in that. I suppose one of the things that's kind of in the last few years has happened in a lot of therapeutic ses- settings is, is trying to move away from labels. So I worked uh, with a ex, what we called at the time, an ex-prisoners project for about five years, right? Uh, and I know when we merged with Extern uh, last year, I know Extern do a lot of work, uh, especially in Northern Ireland, and they use the term person with an offending past, right? Uh, the idea being, and this is across the board, that you, you use person first language. So instead of saying that person is autistic, you say, you know, you know, you say the person has, oh, sorry, I'm using person both times there. But instead of saying he's autistic, you might say he is a person with autism or who has autism. Uh, he is an addict. I hate that term because it's like, that's all you are, right? All you are is an addict. No, you're a person with an addiction who is also a father, a son, a brother, sister, you know, a worker, maybe a coach or GA or football team. You're many, many, many things, right? You have many labels. You can't just put all that in one box and define everything that you are and everything that you do by one behavior, especially if that's a behavior that you no longer engage in. Now, that's not to say that it's it's not important that you never engage in that behavior again. Obviously, that's the point of recovery. But if that's the only thing that defines you, or if society in particular defines you and describes you in that way, I'm totally against that. I'm completely and utterly against that. You're a person first, and that's the idea you use person first language. A person in recovery from a gambling problem or a gambling addiction or a compulsive gambling whatever way you want to say it. But again, if you're comfortable standing up and saying, I'm a compulsive gambler and that works for you, that's great. Do that. That's that's perfect too. Um, I mean, you're talking about the counterintuitiveness as well of the idea of, you know, you, you it was up to you and you had the choice and you had the control of whether you were going to seek help or not. And this is the counterintuitive thing that I think a lot of people kind of get stuck on, let's say, with the 12-step approach as well, is that on the one hand, you have to admit that you have no power over the thing that you're addicted to, right? And on the other hand, you are the only person in the world who can stop gambling. For you. Now, nobody else can do that for you. Nobody can do your recovery for you. So, And we live in a time, or maybe it's the part of the world that we live in, where most of us struggle to hold two conflicting ideas in our head at the same time without our heads exploding. <laughs> so you just have to nail down one of them. And that thing of, well, I'm powerless over it. And yet, which it's a fact, it's an absolute stone cold fact. You're the only person in the world who can do anything about it, right? Those two things are true at the same time. And that's where I think the idea of surrender comes into it because you have to surrender to the fact that yes i am powerless and at the same time i'm 
the only person who can take responsibility for this. It's like this kind of, you know, some of these Zen, you know, what's the sound of one hand clapping? I think they call them koans, you know, or if a tree falls in the forest, does it make a sound? It's one of these things that kind of warps your brain a little bit when you're trying to wrap your head around it. But I think it, you know, it is counterintuitive and it is kind of a bit head melting, but it's also true, right? That you have no control over the thing and yet you are the only person in the universe who can actually do anything about it. Right. Now, within the 12 steps context, I imagine they would say you are the only person in the universe who can, who can do anything about it when you've connected with a higher power of your understanding and when you work the program of the 12 steps and uh, attend regular meetings. And I think there's value in all those things. Right. But they can be a bit head melting. And I think some people uh, kind of rail against that. They were the main ones that I written down. There was just something else. What was the, the the really controversial thing you said, or that you thought that was controversial? Is it more around the disease model? Yeah. So okay. oh, sorry, I know what it is now. Uh, maybe around the, the the character defect. I hate the language in that, but let's say okay, we're going back to a time. It's nearly a hundred years ago. They're both. It's the two bills, isn't it? I always want to say Bill and Bob, but it's two bills actually. Yeah, right. So the two bills. I'm going to get killed for that too. Right. So the two bills started out at a time when the temperance movement was huge. The United States was heading into prohibiting alcohol for a period of time. Right. So there was massive movement against the evils of alcohol. Right. You're, we're going back a hundred years here. Like you have to put this stuff into context. So the idea of a of a character defect would have been the language of the day, I suppose, the morals of the day, the kind of psychological level of psychological understanding of the day. And that idea of, OK, it's a, if it's a disease and yes, you're the only person who has the cure to the, to the disease because you're the only person who can stop gambling. You know, a lot of people get stuck on that idea as well. So sometimes, you know, if if you're stupid enough to look at the comments on the journal on you know anything to do with gambling or addiction or anything like that, which occasionally I do if I'm incredibly bored, you know, somebody will talk about you know, being addiction being a disease, and then a lot of people will come on and say, no, cancer is a disease. You know, you can't just cure yourself from cancer by you know not going to the pub anymore or not going to the bookies anymore. I think there are problems, right, in the minds of a lot of people with calling it a disease. Whereas if it's some sort of a, a defect, right, and like we know now from neurolo neurological research that about one in 10 humans are born with what they call a reward deficiency syndrome, which is basically a, a, a dopamine production deficiency syndrome. So about one in 10 of us are wired ready to go to be addicted to something that's going to help us produce more dopamine, right? And you see the same in rat populations and other animal populations that they've studied, right? So, I mean, you could say, you know, if all of the people in the world who became addicted to something were in that group, well, they kind of have a disease because they're born with this brain disorder, which makes it much more likely for them to become addicted to something. I suppose the reality is that loads more people than that 10% become addicted to something. So what's their disease? Um, and I, I, Like the idea of the defect, I mean, like we've spoken about this before. I think you described it really well or some somebody you worked with it described it as like kind of a, it's a latent thing. 
So you can put a cap on it, like, you know, capping a volcano or something, and it'll stay latent as long as you never, you know, do, you know, gamble again or use your drug of choice again. Right. So you have control up to that point. But if you do anything, you know, if you're drifting back over the red lines in your life, if you do anything that's going to nudge the top off the cap of the volcano, <laughs> then it becomes active again. You know, so there's a lot in that. And I think a lot of people can get bogged down in the language around it and the concepts in it. And is it a disease? Is it not a disease? How are we going to describe it? What sort of words are we going to put on it? Like, ultimately, if you have a gambling problem, you're addicted to gambling, or if you want to call it compulsive gambling, whatever name you want to put on it again, to me, the language isn't particularly important. If gambling is having a negative impact on your life and the lives of people who you care about and you want to stop doing that this is an effective way of doing this right that's all that matters there are also other effective ways of doing it if you prefer those but this is a really effective way of doing it there are dozens of gamblers anonymous meetings all around the country so there's probably one close to you or wherever you are listening in the world there are online gamblers anonymous meetings so it has worked for a lot of people around the world a lot of the time. But yeah, definitely people looking at the steps, sometimes, you know, the head starts melting or they start reacting against it. The language, you know, their own kind of built in thoughts and feelings around what, what religion is in their life or if they perceive something to be religious or spiritual or any of those things. Like park that, just stick a pin in it for a while. Give it a try. Right? If it helps you to stop gambling, that's all that matters as far as I'm concerned. I suppose, yeah, that was one other thing before I had to go off and stop somebody hoovering behind me in the house here on our short break in the middle of the podcast. It was the thing about, you know, is is it important to know why you gambled, right? And like, certainly when I have family members ringing me up, they go, you know, well, will you try and, you know, get to the bottom of why he's doing this and are there underlying issues there? And I go, well, you know, it, you know, if they're trying to refer a family member in or making inquiries about them kind of coming in for counseling, I'll go, well, yeah, that would be a normal part of the process. Sometimes there are underlying issues. Sometimes there aren't. You know, sometimes it's just habituation, which we spoke about with Colin O'Gara and I think Matt Gaskell as well. You do a thing enough times, it forms habit loops, you develop a tolerance, you have to increase your dosage, which is time spent, money spent. And then bang, you're addicted, right? So you don't have to have, to my mind, that's where the defect or the disease model falls down, right? If you expose random person off the street who has no family history of, of addiction, none of the things that would kind of lend or lean towards them being high risk of the disease model type of addiction, you know, well-adjusted everything going on in their life and you get them to drink enough alcohol on a regular basis, they're going to become addicted to alcohol, right? The substance is addictive or cocaine, or if it's gambling, gambling is addictive as we know. So I don't think the disease has to necessarily be there. Uh, for some people that may be a factor. Ultimately, if you're struggling with gambling and you're suffering and you want to stop, look, that's all that stuff just becomes largely irrelevant to a lot of people a lot of the time. Some people want to dig deeper and there is childhood trauma. There's adverse childhood experiences. There's genetic factors. There's the culture and the family 
you name it. There can be so many different factors. That's not going to help you in your first few weeks and months of recovery, right? Probably. Um, but hopefully we haven't pissed off too many people here today. What's Russell Brand's take on the sixth step, Tony? Sorry, before we finish up. Well, that's a lot of fucked up patterns. You want to stop it. And then seriously, question mark. Just kind of totally different wording to um, the sixth step that you described. But um, yeah, I totally agree with all the points you made there about there's many, many different pathways into disordered gambling, gambling, problem gambling, addictive gambling. Um, and there's also many, many pathways of recovery, depending on, I suppose, what the pathway into addiction was. So if it's trauma that brought you there, it's kind of, you know, you might have to do a little bit deeper work on trauma because that can be that thing that takes the cap off that volcano each time, you know, reliving a traumatic event. So I do think like that the habitual one is a big one, I think. I think if gambling is or alcohol is a way of alleviating certain stress in your life, certain boredom, um, relationship issues, um, you know, it as you said, the tolerance that can build up, it can be your go-to place to go. Like how many, how many of us pick up our phone when we're to look at the screen when between meetings? It's our go-to place to go. And that can become something that becomes or develops into um, a problem over time because it's having an adverse effect on your life. Um, is that a disease model? Is that a, is that whatever it is? It's who knows, but at the same time, it's, um, I think it is, we're more conducive now to, to get kind of drawn into the behavior addiction side of things with phone use, with internet use, with gaming, gambling, shopping, because of, if you even look at the pandemic, because of the environment we've been in in the last year, people have turned to various different ways to cope with boredom. And because the way that they usually would have used, like, you know, connecting with people was gone. So people, you know, you know, you see the gambling industry are, are um, reporting big profits. Gaming is on the rise. Um, I'm sure phone use is at an all-time high. And then it's very hard to come back and reconnect with people having connected to a behavior or to a substance over that time as well so it's an interesting one i think i think um like as again like i'm i think the 12-step approach is absolutely i think i live a lot of it um am i like bang on the 12 steps am i really kind of um vigilant with them probably not but i do live a lot of them in my life based on my experience of um of going through a treatment center with, with that at its core so again like i pick a bit of everything um, I kind of pick a bit of that and they say, yeah, that kind of works. And then I, oh, yeah, that kind of works as well. Um, and it's, I, I kind of, uh, it's, it's interesting. I say it to my partner all the time. I just say it's part of my condition. I call it my condition, not a disease. And I use it for everything. She says, she says you have a fucking condition for everything. Um, so um, it's an interesting one. But I do think um, definitely it's of great value. I really loved Russell Brand's book because for so long, I probably, probably is my own, biases or my own experiences of maybe meetings well but so i pulled against it for a while to be honest if i'm totally honest but i think reading um bits and pieces of russell brown's book has given me a, a kind of a fresh insight into it and i think probably after 100 years if i'm totally honest i think the wording could or should be changed to maybe reflect in a to more to more yeah society. but maybe with fewer f-bombs being <laughs> <laughs> dropped <laughs> what, what was it again it was just read me the his version of step six again sorry Tony. that's a lot of fucked up patterns do you want to stop it question mark yeah Seriously. and i think that's a good question. way of looking at it you know we get into these patterns of behavior you know do we want to stop those patterns of behavior 
seriously. <laughs> Do you want to stop it? Like, and that can be a good way of, and I think, you know, Russell Brown, I follow a lot of his stuff. I think he's probably put a lot of thought into uh, his version of those 12 steps as well and teasing them out. And like, if it, okay, if you want to see it as a defect, fine, see it as a defect. If you want to see it as a disease, great, see it as a disease, whatever works for you. Um, if you want to see it as patterns, see it that way. And like, you know, if you get into a patterns of behavior, that's habituation, you're developing habit loops and you, that becomes you know, unconscious. Once something is a habit, you're not conscious that you're doing it anymore. And then you're in trouble, right? If, it, if it's an unhealthy thing and you've, you're no longer conscious of doing it, right? doesn't matter what it is, you're in trouble at that point, right? So uh, that was a lot of unhealthy patterns. I think that's Another good way of looking at it, not to step in the 12 steps or for people who prefer the character defect version of it. But yeah, that's another way of unpacking at it or it's another angle to look at it from. And I suppose that probably would appeal to me more as well. But yeah, OK, we unpacked a lot and probably annoyed a lot of people here today. So. <laughs> Do, that's what we do but I, I recovery is personal as you said and it's it, once whatever recovery model you find or whatever helps you to have a better life than was before with the behavior the substance in your life who am i or you or anyone to say that's right or wrong and that's that's for me i have my own recovery and it works for me so far but i also know that if i'm drifting back i, I think the biggest part of my recovery is recognized when if i'm drifting back to old behaviors or thoughts or feelings and I know of all the different supports out there, all the different ways to help me to get back on track. And for a lot of people, that's GA meetings and that's the 12 step. And that's absolutely brilliant. It's something I would suggest anyone in recovery to give a chance to go in and and really embrace it because it can have a huge impact on Absolutely. Recovery. Well, look, we'll leave it there for today. And uh, if you're struggling with a gambling problem, if you're on the island of Ireland, uh, please check out our new free service. Just go to problemgambling.ie forward slash hidden problem. And we'll be happy to have a chat to you. And whether if it's just information advice, if you want a referral to other services or if you want to link in with our own free counseling service, please reach out. Uh, if you have any thoughts or questions or any ideas uh, of things you want us to discuss on the podcast or if you want to come on the podcast as a guest yourself or if you want to suggest someone else as a guest, um, just go to problemgambling.ie and fill out the contact form. You can do that anonymously. Just put in a fake name, John Smith or whatever, if you don't want us to have any of your details. And we'll we'll work with any suggestions that we get. Okay. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk to you next week. Bye.